0: Dr. Sue Stanfield from the History Department at the University of Texas at El Paso, and this podcast will examine the military aspects of the American Revolution. Here today to help me discuss the revolution is Kevin Strombel, a recent history graduate at UTEP. Thanks for talking to me today.
1: It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So I'm not very well versed in uh, military aspects of U.S. history, but I do know that weapons and strategy were an important part to the, the American Revolution. And I'm, I'm curious if you can help me understand in what ways does the, the revolution sort of embrace modern warfare? And in what ways is it sort of a throwback to what we would have seen in the 1600s?
1: Sure. Well, the interesting thing about um, both sides of, of their military strategy was they came from kind of the same school of thought, right? You had Washington and his Continental Army. Um, they were very, uh, during the um, French and Indian War, they were trained heavily under they fought under the British, right so they faced the very same tactics um, One of the interesting things is that there's this kind of modern connotation that uh, we had very different weapons during the civil war or uh, during the American Revolution and it's just not the case. Both sides had their version of what we'd like to call a smoothbore rifle, which is a a rifle that has no threading within within the the um, within the
0: like muzzle chamber? Yeah,
1: within, within the muzzle. within the, uh, You call it a bore, mm-hmm. right? So within, within that area. So what was happening was we had this concept called um, uh, accuracy by volume. So what would happen is you would construct your ranks in these groups, right? Very much uh, conducive to, to warfare in the early uh, 1600s. You have these massive groups, and they would be instructed by a commander, But what would happen is they would march close and your entire stake in uh, producing casualties or warfare was aiming all a big giant group of weapons at a solid single group and hoping that uh, they would stick, that they would hit, someone would get hit. So if you have a, a group of maybe 20 soldiers all with smoothbore rifles and they all fire at the same time in the same direction, odds are someone on the other side will be hit. So both sides would kind of go into these massive fed frontal assaults, these face-to-face battles. And after the first volley, which is a series of shots, uh, you, would, you would analyze what area has experienced the most casualties. And from there, you could operate under flanks and try to outflank your enemy, outmaneuver your enemy. Um, often, after the first few shots, they would go and do a bayonet charge. In fact, most of the casualties <laughs> right and that's it's a gruesome thing to talk about but most of the casualties took place during these bayonet charges um and the bayonet was certainly one of the most lethal uh weapons in in the war
0: and yet no technology really to it
1: no technology whatsoever um Modern weaponry hadn't really caught up with the war. We see a, a massive difference, of course, when we get to the Civil War about modern weaponry and its influence on casualties. But these smoothbore rifles, they took about 15. You know, the, the well-trained soldier it would take 15 to 20 seconds to reload. It was this extravagant process of having to insert powder in a certain part of the weapon, having to pack down the weapon. It was a very intricate process, and you can imagine what doing that is like repetitively while you're also getting shot at and the chaos and the kind of the fog of war as as we call it.
0: So like how far apart are the two sides?
1: So these weapons, the smoothbore rifles are um, accurate only to a max of 50 yards. Oh, wow. So you can imagine in order to increase your, um, to increase your casualty load, you want to get as close to the enemy as possible. So you would kind of get to this point where they're marching closer and closer uh, to each other. And, once the first few shots go off, then you would signal, charge, and the two armies would collide in a in more of a skirmish style.
0: So are most of the soldiers on horseback or on foot or a combination?
1: Most of the riflemen, as you would say, w- are, are definitely on foot. Their commanders would often be behind the first lines and on horseback because they need to be able to see... Over the, the armies um, or the, the squads, whatever, not squads, uh, the, the groups of soldiers that they were bringing mm-hmm. to the battle. Once the first volley, second volley was unleashed, that is where the strategy comes in, in terms of where do you flank? Where do you attack the enemy? And more often, as they call them, uh, they call them dragoons. Those mm-hmm. are the soldiers, the commanders on horseback. They would stay in reserve. And once the, the general or, you know, the captain, whatever size battle it is, uh, once they realize this is the flank you should attack, they would raise a flag, right? We've got to remember this is no cell phones, no comms, mm-hmm. no satellites. So flags were big uh, signals. Um, and that would signal, let's, let's unleash the cavalry and attack.
0: So sorry to obsess about the bayonet. So, so they're attached to the gun?
1: Yes, the muzzle.
0: Okay, and um, so people are when there's a bayonet charge, Mm -hmm. they're on foot.
1: Oh, yes, they're on foot. So Uh, you are
0: just inches away from the person you're.
1: Absolutely, you are. You are. It it turns. I like to say it it brings it back to the you know warfare of swords, swords and shields. At that point, Uh, in fact, there are many instances. um, I can't remember distinctively one battle, but. Soldiers would often go into battles, especially when they're trying to be silent and stealthy, with unloaded unloaded muskets relying solely on their bayonets for for um, for battle
0: hmm. well, thinking a little more broadly now sure. um, obviously the two sides have different goals or, or sure. you know, different things they have to accomplish and I'm curious, so what is it that the americans are are hoping to do, and what do the British need to do to to put it down because you don't really have a capital per in the same way as like capturing London. Um, it's more on the, mm-hmm. on the run.
1: <laughs> well, that's actually interesting that you bring up the capital because, uh, and we'll get to that a little later, but one of the major mistakes made by the British was the thought that Philadelphia was the capital and, um, and how's uh, seizing on him an opportunity to seize that capital, uh, was a tremendous mistake. But I think we'll get to that once we talk about some more battles. Uh, the Americans had a very interesting strategy. Yet again, there's this common misconception um, uh, that guerrilla warfare was the focus for, for the Americans, and uh, it was actually the opposite. Many of the major battles that took place were structured, you know, uniformed soldiers facing each other. Um, so that is a, a common misconception, but the Americans, what they wanted to do was... Fight a protracted war, and this is very conducive to uh, a lot of military strategy when you're dealing with a stronger foreign power, uh, and you kind of you have your logistics and your resources close enough to where you can retreat. You know, fight a fluctuating war. Uh, So they they really wanted to fight this protracted war. Um, They call it a war of attrition. Right, inflict casualties when they can. Avoid open battle, uh, especially when one of the first battles that was fought—the uh, first major battle—was the was the Battle of Boston, where both sides, you know, fought this heavy, heavy um, hand-to-hand combat. Right, uh, you had Britain win the war, but they lost uh, around four thousand soldiers, um, and it was really kind of the epitome of what the carnage was was to come. So at that point, you know, the American uh, strategy shifts. And for the British, interestingly enough, they fight the war in three stages. The first stage is they treat the uh, American uprising, the American rebellion, as a rebellion. It's a small group of people that, uh, you know— a lot of uh, people at this point are still sympathetic to the British. They, they still want to be a part of the British Empire, whether that's for trade or, or anything like that. So the rebellion starts in a very small, small scale. As the uh, war starts to, as the British realize, this is the key part here, that it's not going to be a small force. They have assembled a continental army. They have put a commander-in-chief, George Washington, in charge. This is not going to be a small skirmish War. This is going to be a long, protracted war against a well-established enemy. They transition and they send massive amounts of soldiers um, to Long Island, right? And from there, that's where the biggest scale of fighting is. They send around four th- or 40,000 soldiers, massive Navy, massive stocks. All these soldiers are really well-trained and they absolutely decimate us. So that's the second stage of the war. The third stage is the uh, stage of the war after a few victories um, from Washington and his forces. They want to um take a southern approach. So they fight in the southern uh the southern hemis- or the southern part of the United States. And each stage of the war is really showing the evolution and the scale of what the fighting is. But you also have to keep in mind that they want to Preserve the goodwill of the population as much as possible, right? They don't want to come in and scorched earth policy, right. right? They want to very much be friends yet foes, right? They want to put down the rebellion, but they want to keep the hearts and minds of the people. A common expression: uh, hearts and minds. Preserve the hearts and minds. So, very different strategies, and uh, and the outcome of the war is is a very interesting evolution of those strategies.
0: So they start out kind of thinking, oh, let's get rid of the Sons of Liberty or something. Sure. And in Boston, yeah. but it turns into a much larger. Yes. Does it take them long to get more troops here?
1: Not as or long they? as you would think. They okay. had uh, they had a stockpile of troops down in the Caribbean, in the Bahamas, oh, in that fact. that makes sense. Yeah. So it, you really just have to kind of sail up the coast. Um, they were able to, within probably a year, you know, it, the ships are sails. There's no big steam engines or anything like that. So it does take a while to uh, move logistics over there. But they also had bases in Canada already. They had a um, Fort Detroit. They had uh, definitely some stockpile of troops up in, in the northern territories. Uh, so they, they had the logistics in place to fight an open, uh, an open war, total war. But it definitely, you know, scaled up. In the in the late seventeen eighties, or the late seventeen seventies.
0: So, um, what is kind of kind of the major turning point? Because when does it become clear? Hey, the Americans might actually win this.
1: So, the common turning point is the Battle of Saratoga, right? And what what happens is, early, and when
0: is that? About what year?
1: Uh, seventeen. It's 77. I'm thinking 17, 77. 78. 78. Yeah. yeah. I think it's 77, late late that winter. Uh, October, November, right. very cold times. So that's the common turning point that people point to. The issue with that, and it certainly is a turning point, right? I can describe a little bit of that of that battle if you'd like.
0: Just quickly, Just kind of a high point.
1: High point. So once Britain realized that they had to have a focused army to fight, they brought resources from all from a, a three-pronged approach. They brought General Bourguignon's forces, forces from Canada, Howe's army from um, Charleston, and some soldiers from Detroit. And this three-pronged approach was supposed, they were all supposed to meet at Albany. Mm-hmm. Um, what happened is there was no real commander-in-chief of the forces. And you can imagine that communication between these three forces was impossible. You could maybe send a lone rider, but we're talking about a span of 600, 700, Uh, 800 miles. So halfway through the march onto Albany, Howe decided that this was a good time to go to try to take the capital of Philadelphia. Mm. And what his philosophy was, very much like a lot of um, kind of calling back to warfare in the early 1600s, if you capture the capital, you've captured the army. You've captured their their base. So that was Howe's thinking. Let's get to Philadelphia. Let's put down these leaders, right? The Sons of Liberty, the people of the Second Continental Congress. Let's let's go there. He does capture Philadelphia, but the Congress just moves. Yeah, they just <laughs> they get up and go. And it's it's not the building that's important. It's what they're writing, what they're saying. So this leaves Burgoyne all alone. And Burgoyne was this ex- extravagant general who they kind of thought of it as a moving city, right? He, but he had to move through difficult, muddy terrain. His, his forces were exhausted. And by the time they got to Saratoga, um, he had to surrender. He couldn't get any reinforcements. So this is that major turning point that a lot of people talk about, but the war went on for four or five more years. And after Saratoga, Um, Cornwallis was sent over, and he thought, let's fight in the south, the southern campaign. And he was victorious. He captured Charleston. You know, he had this string of victories that really decimated morale. Um, But one battle, the Battle of Camden, really should be seen as the turning point in the second stage of the war. So you had uh, General um, Daniel Morgan. So
0: Camden, New Jersey?
1: No, or South where? Camden, south, uh, south Carolina. I could right. be mistaken. Whatever, whatever one of the Camdens is yes. in the South. I'm sure there's one in every state. Um, he, Daniel Morgan, doesn't get enough enough credit. In fact, if you've ever seen the movie The Patriot, which is historically inaccurate, terrible, uh, you know, really dilutes history. But the main character was a fusion of of Daniel Morgan, and in fact, the main battle scene at the end of that movie is based off of the Battle of Camden, where Cornwallis and some of his hubris um, overestimates his capacity um, and underestimates both the militia and the South. And right there, that is the turning point. From there, Cornwallis has to retreat all the way up to Yorktown. And the French come in, and that is, uh, that's a—that's all she wrote.
0: All right. So um, you haven't said a lot about Washington, and yet— we think about him as uh, you know, not only the father of our country, yeah. but as this great military uh, genius. Yeah. And and I'm curious: is is his reputation just all hype? Kind of this, yeah. we want to feel good about about him, or was he uh, was he actually pretty good? Because he had issues, I mean, he wasn't very successful in the French and Indian sure. War.
1: Yeah, Washington's career is is a fascinating. Um, Representative for how a general should evolve throughout his career, so at I believe it was Fort Ticonderoga, no Quebec, mm. Quebec. Yeah. One of the one of the uh, battles while Washington uh, was kind of getting his his um, uh, sharpening his bayonet, so to speak, was uh, he he lost it was mm-hmm. it was it was a, it was a whooping, um, and he was young at this point. He he didn't really know a lot about. Um, kind of warfare, and and concepts of risk versus reward. So really, that was a a huge moment for him. After he was elected, and of course, or not elected, but appointed the commander-in-chief because he was from Virginia, right? Mm -hmm. So they wanted to be able to preserve kind of uh, uh, the South's identity in the Continental Army. He gets whooped, right? He gets whooped a lot. He doesn't really have a a huge victory. He's forced to retreat after the Battle of Long Island. He loses the Maryland 400, which are his best troops. They elected to stay behind and cover Washington's um, retreat. Washington's indecisiveness at this battle was really uh, a a strike to the morale. He split up his troops because of the impending invasion of the British, Right, the 40,000 troops, one of the one of the, if not uh, most impressive achievements in the 1700s in terms of naval warfare, and he loses his forces and he's forced on this long, long retreat all the way down to Trenton, all the way down across, to cross the river in Trenton. He sees the morale of the army weakening, right? They've been retreating for you know months, maybe close to a year now, and he realizes now is the time that I need to take that risk. Right? He avoided risk leading up to this battle. It is a risk now. And this is that famous picture that we see, that famous depiction of Washington leading, you know, across across the river in his mm-hmm. in his beautiful, beautiful garb, yes. which of course you know that's not what it looked like after after all those retreats. And he takes that risk. And they're able to capture, a, a, you know, capture and kill a massive Hessian army, a massive German army at this moment. And it becomes kind of this reinvigoration of, of, the, of the army. And then from there, he's able to kind of make the war as an, into a stalemate in the north. And then his final, most, his final brilliant move was taking his troops, marching the 200 miles into Yorktown, realizing that the French were on their way and, you know, a few skirmishes happened there, but that was the huge decisive move uh, that really showed his development as a military commander.
0: So was Cornwallis a good general, a bad general? I mean, is it surprising that someone like Washington was able to, to defeat him with a a superior force?
1: Cornwallis was a, a, a brilliant tactician, he was he. His southern campaign was incredibly successful. He lost a few battles based on chance, based on you know two armies stealthily trying to get in position, and then they were they um, fought an open conflict, uh, like the Battle of Calpens is, is probably one of his biggest um, victories. But what happened after the Battle of Saratoga was French, the you know, French support started to. Um, divert resources across the globe. Once French entered the war, it really became that world war, and Britain severely limited um, Cornwallis's resources, Cornwallis's logistics. In fact, two thirds of the army was removed from New um, from North American theater and sent down to the Caribbean. Mm. The British thought that the the, the supply lines in Caribbean were way more important than what was going on, you know, with sugar, with with all that stuff. Were way more important. So right. they took a lot of their forces and Cornwallis was really left with nothing to do. Um, he had some great, you know, great battles, but at Yorktown he was just circled by a superior enemy and cut off from resources from the French.
0: So does he know the French are there initially or he
1: expects that uh, He knows that the French are now fighting in, okay. in North America, but he expects there to be some British reinforcements coming up the river okay. to supply his base at Yorktown. What happens is the French Navy gets there first, and they completely cut off Cornwallis from, from those resources. And he is now in a siege, and there's really not much he can do. So it's, uh, it's, it's, he was a great general— the, the war might have been different if he had the logistics necessary to win, but Washington came out on top.
0: So, we always talk about how many um, people died during the U.S. Civil War. Sure. Um, but it, I've been thinking when I, and just in my more general reading, I don't see numbers as often for uh, the American Revolution. I was wondering, um, was it a bloody war? Were there substantial yeah. casualties?
1: <clears throat> well. The casualties were not as – were nowhere, of course, near the, the American Civil War, ranging from, you know, counts of 600,000, you know, to 750,000.
0: And then right? if you throw in, you know, civilians.
1: Civilian deaths. Yeah. Um, it's uh, – it, there's no comparison. I mean all the wars that America has fought is half of what – or is half of the total. The rest is, is you know, the Civil War. So for the uh, American Revolution, it was a bloody war in terms of the fighting we talked about earlier with bayonets, close quarters, um, as you get a little bit later, you know, um, artillery becomes huge, um, you know, new howitzers and all that stuff. But the casualties remained pretty minimal, you know, for the, for the American, uh, for the American forces, modern estimates between six and 7,000 killed. Um, the big casualties came from disease. There was about 17,000 people killed in disease. Um, and most of the actual casualties didn't happen in battle. It was prisoners of war. Okay. And prisoners of war were housed in, uh, often in ships off the coast. And uh, as, as stockpiles grew, as, as they dwindled for the British forces, the, the, the prisoners of war were completely ignored. Um, f- there was no real... Bloody battle. I think the the one of, one of the battles with the most casualties was was the Battle of Boston that we talked about a little bit earlier. You know, three or four thousand combined casualties. Um,
0: but there's no equivalent to an Antietam or a no, Shiloh or in Gettysburg. The Civil War. Right? Okay.
1: But one of the biggest reasons why is the scale of the armies. Right. The biggest the biggest battle was the Battle of Long Island, where about forty five thousand troops from both sides combined met. Mm-hmm. That represented one half of one army that fought at Gettysburg. Right. Right. So you don't have that giant scale um, of of battles that you would see, and therefore less casualties uh, come about.
0: Okay. So I've always kind of wondered um, why does why does Yorktown end it all? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, why does Cornwallis completely surrender? Um, you know, because to me, you know, it's kind of just in Virginia. Yeah. It's a rural state, our colony, yeah. whatever it is at that point. You know, why is that suddenly the the defining moment? Sure. Is it, do the, are the British just tired of it?
1: Well, I mean, yeah, they're absolutely tired of it. Uh, the, the support, you know, close to Yorktown, the, the support on the homeland for fighting a war in America is, uh, for the British is decimated, right? It's been a long war. You know, soldiers are shipped off, uh, you know, there's casualties, but not only that for the British, that's just one small theater in what becomes a world war, right? They're fighting in the Caribbean, they're Mm -hmm. fighting in India, they're fighting, they're afraid of a French and Spanish invasion on their homeland because they're so close, Right. right? In fact, if you look over, you know, you're on the cliffs of Dover, you can see, uh, you can see Normandy, you can see France and that threat of invasion is huge. Um, so Yorktown is this convergence of everything you know of, of kind of this snowball of decreased morale on the homeland of um, th- they put a lot of weight into Cornwallis's southern campaign and when that's st- when he had to retreat, when he started losing, that's when uh, you know morale was even at a lower point. And then when you add to f- add to it France now sending ships over right? right for a while it was just they were supporting with money. They were supporting with um, not necessarily logistics. As soon as they started sending their Navy, soldiers, more weapons, and then cutting off what was the greatest hope, which was Cornwallis' army from resources, they decided that that was it. Um, And Yorktown gets a lot of of credit for being the final battle of the American Revolution, and it very much is the final battle of the American Revolution – but the last battle is actually about this war was fought in India in 1783, right? That's how historians. Tell me more. <laughs> I don't. I can't recall exactly where it happened. Um, but the last battle was not fought of the American Revolution was not fought on American soil. You had still skirmishes going down in the Caribbean. You had uh, skirmishes really happening all over the world, and and Britain just decided the war is lost in the Americas. So, when you say
0: that it's happening in the Caribbean and it's happening in India, are these like proxy wars with France? Yeah. On behalf of the the Americans, in essence. And
1: Spain, Spain. right? Spain is an ally. Um, The Dutch are allies, right? So, it really becomes this nuanced conflict amongst uh, the world's central powers um, or the Western world's central powers. And you know the the battles the American um, North American theater was just one small portion that that Britain had to the lowly small little island was fighting all over the world and their logistical system just couldn't deal with it. War is all about logistics, and if you right. can't supply your armies, you can't communicate appropriately. You're 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 not gonna not gonna get it.
0: It does seem that these uh, European powers are a little short sighted. Uh, to be promoting an independence movement. I mean, I know they don't like the British, but it's not going to be so long before it comes home to roost for other empires. Well, one of the things as we look at all of these events and people and uh, figures from the past, I'm always hoping we can look at it from a 21st century kind of framework. So I've been asking all of the experts that uh, I've talked to to imagine that... um, You know, George Washington has an Instagram account. And what sort of hashtags would he use to sort of promote himself or um, the idea of American independence?
1: Sure. Well, I took a different – I'm not, as we talked about earlier, very proficient with what a hashtag is. Um, But I do know that sometimes they're meant to kind of twist the knife in some things. Mm -hmm. Um, So for Washington, I'm kind of setting this hashtag based after the Battle of Yorktown – or maybe right during it. And I think it's going to be hashtag Francophile. Ah. And the reason is, is that we tend to forget that France saved us heavily, right? Um, France was one of the reasons why we were able to keep up uh, in terms of money. And once they kind of reached in with their resources. So Francophile is this unbelievable love for everything French, French culture, language, Mm -hmm. and everything. And I got to believe that Washington, once he sees those ships, He's, he's loving France. And, uh, you know, America never really pays France back until, um, in terms of committing and, uh, until world war one. And the first thing that general John J. Pershing says as he gets off, uh, the boat and lands on French soil is Lafayette. We are here. Lafayette. We have come really bringing the France American, um, uh, Alliance full circle. And, uh, and then I always, and then I think for hashtags, there's supposed to be a reply, mm-hmm. right, or something. So I'm kind of thinking at that moment, after um, after the King George kind of realizes that he's gonna lose the war, he goes hashtag we're good, right? <laughs> because now he has to make allies with uh, after the Treaty of Paris. He still has colonies. He still has armies. He still has people in North America and he needs to preserve those trade relationships. Uh, so he's kind of going from this this realm of aggression to this realm of reconciliation. So hashtag we're good, right? I think would be a, a solid representation for, for King George at that moment.
0: All right, well thanks a lot. Um, I learned a lot about the mm. military aspects of the war. I feel like I always think about writing the Declaration of Independence. Yeah. Uh, how do we finance a war? But I i often try to ignore the war itself so this sure. was incredibly useful it's fun you.
1: you're very welcome thanks for having me